0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Epictetus was a Greek Stoic philosopher who was born into slavery and lived from 50 to 130 CE. Though Epictetus was just a teacher and wrote nothing of his own, his Stoic discourses were captured by his student Lucius Flavius Arianus, known to scholars as Arian. The guest on this episode is Robin Waterfield, an independent scholar and translator living in southern Greece, and the topic of our conversation is Epictetus, The Complete Works, Handbook, Discourses, and Fragments, out now from the University of Chicago Press. In this episode, we discuss the life of Epictetus, some characteristics of Stoicism, the life of Arianne, and more. You can visit Robin Waterfield online at RobinWaterfield.com, and you can find me on Twitter at Classical Underscore Ideas. It was a delight to meet with Robin again four years after his first appearance on this show, and I really hope you enjoy our conversation. Robin Waterfield, thank you so much for joining me today.
1: Well, thank you very much for the invitation, Greg.
0: It's a delight to have you. I'm wondering if you can just spend a moment and introduce yourself a little bit to the listeners out there, however you see fit so they know who you are and what you do.
1: Okay, well, I'm a uh, a British scholar. Oh, well, no, actually, I should say English now, since Britain seems to be falling apart. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I'm a British independent scholar, which means I'm not attached to any university or college. I've lived for the past 15 years in the uh, far south of Greece, um, and I also have Greek citizenship by now. I've had um, over 50 books published. Um, In the early days, I wrote a variety of books, including children's fiction. But um, I've always specialised in the classical world, or more specifically in the ancient Greek world rather than the Roman world. And I even taught that at universities uh, in the UK for a while. Um, when I say I've had over 50 books published, I'm including translations, but not just because translating is pretty much as difficult in its way as writing a book but also because I write the introductions and notes. I generally write the introductions and notes to my translations. And by the time I've done that, I've written uh, uh, original stuff at book length anyway. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's what I do, really. I I live in the south of Greece. I also have a a small olive farm producing beautiful olive oil, and uh, I write books, and that's it.
0: I love that. I remember you talking about your olive farm last time you were here. One of the other books that you wrote, How Socrates Died, was something that you and I talked about on this exact show for the june twenty fifth two thousand and eighteen episode. and I actually had to go back and find the exact date that I put that out because I was like, we have to talk about this. Um so well, I, 2000- was
1: a, I, I was I was a podcast virgin. that was my first podcast.
0: Amazing! And have you <laughs> have you have you done a lot since then? Has that I've done a that... lot
1: since then, particularly during COVID, when you know people were getting used to using Zoom and uh, things like that. And so, yes, I've done a lot since then. But you were my first, correct?
0: That is so amazing. I absolutely love that. And so we actually get to talk face to face now we didn't get to do that the first time around. So this is like such a delight. And um, you know, so it's great to have you back Robin. And you know, I'm wondering how your life and work has been since you were last here over four years ago, because I mean, so much has changed. We're talking about like a different world then how has your your time been since then?
1: uh well i'm in a sense of course much of it has been pretty much the same as everybody else's in other words you know i was in covid lockdowns and uh, restrictions and things like that i mean there's a sense in which COVID didn't really change my life that much because pretty much all i do as i've already said is sit at my desk and write books yeah um i had to find a way around the fact that libraries were closed because i need access to uh good academic libraries. But the worldwide community of classical scholars was fantastically helpful when it came to supplying material that was unavailable to me. Uh, I subscribed to a classics listserv and I just put up requests on that. And I had the papers and even the books within a few days. So since we spoke in, we actually spoke in May 2018, but it was Mm -hmm. published in June. Uh, Since then, I've had four translations published including this recent one epictetus and two original books one on the ancient olympic games and one on the obscure very obscure third century bce and the macedonian king antigonus gonatas
0: wonderful what are the titles of those other two that we don't have a chance to discuss today
1: um the olympic games one is called olympia the story of the Olympic games, I think. Okay. And the uh, Antigonus Gonatas book is called um, The Making of a King, Antigonus Gonatas of Macedon and the Greeks.
0: Wonderful. I just wanted to make sure we get those out there. So we are going to dive into your new book out now through the University of Chicago Press called Epictetus, The Complete Works, Handbook, Discourses and Fragments. Tell me about the origin of of this project and kind of how this like took shape for you over the last couple of years.
1: Um, well, it came about very in a very mundane fashion, really. I mean, the that book I've just mentioned, The Making of a King, um, Antigonus Gonatas and Macedon and the Greeks, um was published by the University of Chicago Press. Uh, I think as an act of generosity, they wanted me on their list because it's an obscure topic and that that book was never going to be a, a bestseller. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was my contact with Chicago, who've also published the Epictetus. And then, secondly, I had already translated for basic books um, an annotated edition of another Stoic thinker, Marcus Aurelius's famous meditations. And since I really enjoyed doing that, I offered Epictetus to Chicago, who had already published the complete works of Epictetus's most important Stoic predecessor, Seneca the Younger. And uh, they said, yes. And so uh, I got down and did it.
0: Amazing. I love it. You know, um, something that is, this has been a topic that's been long requested on this show. I've never done an episode on Stoic studies at at all. This is my very first one. I've never mentioned Epictetus on this show that I can remember. And so this is brand new. So I love being able to recognize and, and make a note for the listeners when I'm talking about something for the first time, because it's like I get to learn in real time about these topics that are still brand new to me years after doing this show. So um, I'm wondering if we can tease out a couple of terms here, Um, you know, maybe defining stoicism, like kind of giving like a little potted introduction to that topic in general might be a, a good place to start. What do you think?
1: okay i'll try i mean it's a huge topic of course there Mm -hmm. are books written about stoicism but uh, i'll see what i can do in a nutshell nowadays of course stoicism means what should we say the ability to endure hardship without complaining and without displaying emotion and that is that is a true reflection of ancient stoicism but there's a lot more to it than that um stoicism was not a matter of faith Every one of their tenets was argued for, uh, but I don't have time to explain the arguments that would take us take a long time. So here's a kind of a bullet list of the main characteristics uh, or at least the main characteristics in one of three fields. The Stoics divided philosophy into three fields, physics, logic and ethics, and I'll focus on ethics because that's Epictetus's focus in the discourses. Mm -hmm um so the starting point for the stoics is that the only good thing there is is virtue and the only thing that is bad is vice or imperfection only a fully virtuous person is truly happy or fulfilled everything else everything other than virtue or vice is what the stoics call an indifferent it's neither good nor bad and it has nothing to contribute to our happiness or misery. That means, I mean, 99.9% of what we encounter in the world is for the Stoics an indifferent. Mm. But we people treat indifference, such as pleasure, wealth, health, and so on, as if they were important. And that is what attaches us to the material world and its values. This is the fundamental error. In Stoic terms, we assent. To mistaken propositions such as that pleasure is good and so we drag ourselves down to the level of beasts or infants. Um, But you can see I think straight away how extremely difficult it is to be an enlightened stoic sage. Only a fully virtuous person is truly happy or fulfilled but since 99% of our lives is dealing with indifference um, and you know generally getting caught up in them even the Stoics admitted that a fully enlightened sage was a rara avis mm. as rare as, I can't remember what they said as rare as the phoenix or something like that anyway, but extremely rare. Mm. But this stark position was slightly diluted. The good life, one of the most common ways the Stoics describe the good life, the, the, the life we should all be living, is that it is lived in accordance with nature. But human nature, as granted us by the benevolent god involves let's say good health rather than ill health that is our natural state so from that point of view living in accord with nature means having good health rather than ill health so among the infinite class of indifference although none of them are either good or bad some were allowed to be what they call preferred indifference so good health is a preferred indifferent. A moderate amount of wealth is a preferred indifferent. Anything which allows us or helps us to live in accord with nature is a preferred indifferent. We don't want it, but we can choose it. We can select it, I said. Next, I should say that virtue is knowledge. The virtue of courage, for instance, is knowing what is truly fearful and what isn't. Now. If virtue is knowledge, then behaving non-virtuously is a product of ignorance. Everyone thinks that everything they do is good for them, but we're simply often objectively mistaken in this. We have to cultivate knowledge and rationality, which is to say we cultivate the divine in us, since God is perfected reason. We will act well and appropriately when all our actions are rationally justifiable. Hence, self-regarding behavior is appropriate, because it's rationally justifiable. It preserves us. I look after myself, I look after my body, it preserves me. That is appropriate behavior, because it's in accord with nature. But other regarding behavior, justice, kindness to others, thinking about others and their concerns, is also appropriate, because in order to be good to yourself, you have to be good to others. As I say, that was one of the points that was argued for, but I can't go into the answers Now, that's that's a kind of a bare bullet list. And I appreciate that it's going to beg dozens of questions. But those <laughs> are the most important stoic teachings that underline and form Epictetus's work.
0: Well, where I kind of am, I'm curious now is like some of the, you know, going through school and growing up and going to university and things like that throughout my own life. Like you come across these names of these like ancient figures who are you know, well known within certain fields, and then they come up, but then they get like listed like quickly in college courses, and they get kind of just blasted through. And I'm wondering if you can, like, you know, tease out a couple of the the major figures within stoic studies that, you know, are important to you as somebody who studies these things, you know, professionally, you know, what are some some folks, some other stuff that that, that we should read and, and look at as well too?
1: Well, um, <clears throat> Stoicism was founded in uh, around the turn of the third and second centuries BC, uh, so it had a long history. The work of the earliest Stoics, in fact, the work of all the Stoics up until uh, Seneca, Epictetus's pre- re- predecessor in Roman imperial times, the work of all the Stoics is just only in fragments. But nevertheless, it's clear from later references that the first three heads of the school were placed on a very high pedestal. They were Zeno. This is not the Zeno of Zeno's paradoxes. Lots of people have heard of Zeno's paradoxes, but that was a different Zeno. This is Zeno originally of Kitium in Cyprus. He was the first head of the school, and then Cleanthes, and then Chrysippus. They were the first three heads of the school in the uh early 3rd century BCE. And over these Chrysippus was the most important theoretician of Stoicism and ever since his work, he wrote dozens and dozens of books, ever since his work the Stoics looked back to him. So, for instance, when I say that Epictetus was a Stoic teacher, that means, above all, that he based is teaching on the work of Chrysippus. So these three, know, Cleanthes, and especially Chrysippus established Stoic orthodoxy. In the centuries between them and Epictetus's time in the second century, uh, well, the end of the first and the beginning of the second century AD or CE, there were plenty of other eminent and important Stoics such as Ariston, Diogenes of Babylon, Panaitius, Posidonius but they weren't always fully orthodox. So I skip over to the Stoics of the Roman Imperial period, where, as I've just said, for the first time, we have complete texts. And there, the most important Roman Stoics were Seneca the Younger, Musonius Rufus, Epictetus, and Marcus Aurelius.
0: Excellent. So I wanna know a little bit about the life of Epictetus. What can reasonably be known about him with any degree of certainty?
1: Well, very little. Um, Most of what we know is based on what we can glean from reading between the lines of the discourses themselves. Uh, But nevertheless, we can know enough to give at least a sort of an outline of his life. He lived, let's say, from maybe 50, maybe 60 CE to 130-ish. Interestingly, he was born a slave Mm -hmm. Uh, and he was born in what is now southwestern turkey a city called hierapolis at some point in his childhood or youth he was taken to rome and he worked there in the household of an important man who was close to the emperor nero he was given his freedom at around the age of 30 and before long he set himself up as a teacher of stoic philosophy along with a bunch of other philosophers he was expelled from rome by the emperor Domitian in around 93 uh, philosophers were often suspected of having Republican sympathies. And so uh, emperors didn't uh, didn't approve of them. Um, Epictetus moved to the west coast of Greece um, and set up his school there. He lived in the city of Nicopolis, which was um, the capital of the Roman province of Epirus and was not a difficult sea journey away from Italy, where many of his students came from. So that was where he taught. He just lived in Nicopolis and taught in Nicopolis for 30 years or so before retiring. And then he died, as I say, around 113.
0: You know, as I was reading through the book the other day, I noticed that there is a figure who seems completely essential to the story of Epictetus, and that's Lucius Flavius Arianus. I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about that person's role and importance in the works of what we know about Epictetus in general
1: well he was um one well okay let's let's start from a slightly different angle he was a he became a very important writer in his own in his own right oh cool um, um for instance he's he he wrote um about Alexander the Great's Eastern Expedition, and uh, even though he was writing the second century AD, I mean, you know, 500 years after Alexander, his account of Alexander's Eastern Expedition is still considered to be uh, the best, or, or at least one of the very best. Um, he was, but before he became a, a famous writer like that, he, he studied with Epictetus in Nicopolis, and um, his great bequest to us to future generations was that he somehow managed to um, transcribe Epictetus' discourses. What we have, we have four books of discourses. There were probably more, well, there were certainly more, but we don't know how many more books there were originally, but they were all transcribed by Arian, as we call him, uh, Flavius Lucius Lucius Arianus is known to us as Arian. Mm. Um, how he did this is, I mean, slightly miraculous. He must have known stenography, or perhaps he had an educated slave who who knew stenography. That was not that was not an impossible task for a, an enslaved person in those days. Because um, it, it still seem, seems miraculous, because as you read the discourses, you can see that they were they were delivered live, they were delivered extempore, they were delivered off the cuff, and the rap the delivery was often very rapid but somehow Arrian managed to get these down. There may have been already a stock of at least some of the discourses, uh, but um, it's really due to Aryan that, uh, that we owe the discourses. And in addition to writing the discourses, um, or in addition to transcribing the discourses, he also wrote um, a book, which is simply known as the handbook or the manual. Which is Arian's own words, but based very heavily on the discourses. Arian's way of introducing um, Epictetus's thought, uh, perhaps for students who'd heard of Epictetus's fame and might be interested in uh, in um, following it up and going and studying at his school. Excellent. So, so without Arian, we wouldn't have Epictetus.
0: I love that. I love those like those. Um those really important turning points and stories like that, because it's like this one person makes all of these things possible centuries later. And it's really kind of beautiful and romantic. If you think about it.
1: Yeah. That very often happens. It just so happens that in this case, we actually know the name of the person who did it.
0: (laughs) So cool. Um, You know, something that stands out to me about the biography of Epictetus is his past as a slave. And I'm curious about how something like that influences his teachings in a way that makes him stand out from other ancient teachers who may have had like a different station in life or started from a different place. Um, What really stands out to you within his teaching that is kind of unique among his contemporaries due to his periods of enslavement in his life?
1: Yeah, no, I think that's, that's a good question. And I think there's no doubt that Epictetus's time as a slave did leave its mark on his teaching. Um, there are, you know, there are resemblances between, um, I mean, all the way from Plato, even his predecessors, all the way through to the Stoics and the Epicureans. There are certain kind of family resemblances among uh, the schools of ancient philosophy. Uh, they all um, insisted that it was a way to, you know, to be enlightened in our terms, to, to, uh, to um, make the best of yourself. But more than any other philosopher that I know of, Epictetus insisted that however else one described the goal of life, it must be a state of freedom. And this is where I think his background as a slave left its mark, Mm. a state of freedom where, as he puts it at one point in the discourses, everything that happens to a person is in accord with his will, and no one is able to impede him. The starting point of his teaching and we'll come back to this perhaps uh in a moment is that some things are up to us and some things aren't the events of our lives our parents the people we meet everything that happens to us these things are not up to us it's not in our power to change them we are not free in relation to these things i wasn't free to choose my parents you weren't free to choose your parents etc etc um in epictetus's terms they were given to us by God. And since God is only ever good and takes care of his children, we should just accept them and make use of them as the materials on which to get good at the art of living. Uh, Just as leather is the material for a cobbler, these events in our lives are materials for practicing virtue. One important consequence of this is that to pray for our lives to be different is a kind of blasphemy for Epictetus Mm. because it's an implicit denial that God is doing what is best for us. But what's up to us, what's within our power, is how we react to all these God-given or predestined events, the uh, Stoics were determinists. We can control our internal states, our desires and inclinations, our choices, our judgments, our hopes and fears, and so on and so forth, in short, all the things that make up our characters. And the way we control them is by paying attention to our use of impressions as Epictetus puts it, which is to say what propositions we are sent to, this is how we get to be free. Um, So his point is that no one can stop you having the inclinations you have or Mm. making the choices that you make. In the sphere of our inner lives, we are totally and utterly free. And just as a footnote to that, I'll say, But that to me is why the scene in George Orwell's 1984 is so terrifying. The one where Winston Smith is being tortured until he admits that two plus two equals five. Right. Because two plus two equals four is one of Epictetus's standard examples of a proposition that you can only assent to because it is true. And so, but Winston Smith was being forced to uh, assent to something that was false.
0: Is there any documentation that George Orwell was an appreciator of stoic studies? Uh,
1: not that I know of, but that doesn't mean it doesn't exist.
0: True. <laughs> I love it. You know, um, in the introduction to the book, uh, you say something that was that really caught my eye um, as I was going through the different teachings. You say that the point of reading text is to learn how to judge things correctly and then apply those judgments in real life situations. And I was thinking about how ordinary mundane things that happen to us on any given day like you know getting caught behind somebody at a red signal in your car for too long or you know the weather being terrible and how these things have such a determining factor over our everyday lives for so many people and how such mundane things can like ruin our day-to-day existence um it got me really thinking about this quote of like applying uh, judgments in our real life. And so I definitely wanted to ask you about, you know, some of your favorite Epictetus teachings, like, do you have like a top three to connect to examples of like the way you see your own day-to-day life? Does, do you like, uh, have some favorite lessons from throughout the book that you, uh, would like to, you know, reflect upon?
1: Hmm. I wouldn't really say, that they're my that anything is my personal favorite this is one of the odd things about working as a translator is that the way you approach the text isn't really in a personal fashion you're simply trying to reproduce as faithfully as possible what you read there Mm -hmm. rather than rather than kind of necessarily applying it to yourself so i wouldn't say that i had favorite teachings in that particular sense but um But what I would say is that one of the great things, I mean you asked do I have a top three favorite teachings, but what the great thing about Epictetus is that there isn't really a top three. um, In his discourses, at any rate, which is all that survives what he's doing there is he reduces the complexity of stoic practical ethics to its simplest foundations so rather than being. Rather than there being a top three, there's really only one axiom. And I certainly appreciate this axiom. Sure. And, ev- and everything else he says <laughs> follows from and is an elaboration of this single axiom. And the axiom is the one with which Ariane started the handbook. Some things are up to us and some things aren't. And what he means by this is roughly as follows. I've covered some of this already, but it's worth repeating because, as I say, it is actually the core of Epictetus's teaching. So some things are up to us, they are, some things are not up to us, I should say first, they are external to us and just happen to us, as I've said before, the events of our lives and so on and so forth. But our minds are, are our own and we can control our internal states and our responses to events. These things are up to us and can't be thwarted by anyone or anything else. If you know that it's daylight today, no one can make you say that it's night. That's one of Epictetus' examples. So we need to learn to accept experiences and events over which we have no control, to recognize them as indifferent, to bring up that term again, and to use them as the materials on which to practice virtue. We need to see them as the gifts of a providential God who steers and arranges everything in the universe, great and small, for the best, especially for his favorite creatures, humankind. And in this way, fated events become opportunities, not constraints. So if we understand that our happiness doesn't depend on our bodies and possessions and careers, but on the mental faculties that are up to us on the use of our will, then we'll free ourselves of negative emotions, those that are not supportive of our natural potential for goodness. And Mm -hmm. our rational faculty, The distinctive part of the human being will begin to work better now that it's uncluttered by unnecessary reactions. It will begin to judge things correctly. And since everything bad that happens to us is a result of our own wrong judgments, we'll start to live well. In other words, what Epictetus is saying is that it's a fact of our human nature that we have all the resources we need to achieve happiness in a smoothly flowing life. No one empowers or disempowers us except ourselves. Moment by moment, we need to assess our mental condition to make sure that we're focusing only on things that are up to us and not letting externals worry us. And that way we can take control of our lives. So you see, from that single axiom, some things are up to us and some aren't, you get this increasing density of of thought. And I don't mean dense in in the sense of incomprehensible at all, because Epictetus is wonderfully clear. Um yeah, but uh but yeah, just from that single axiom, everything else follows. And so that that's his you see, he, he was a teacher. Uh he was obviously a practicing stoic as well. But what we what we mainly see of him is as a teacher. And so it was important for him as a teacher to simplify things, to take things back to their rock bottom basics. And that's why he came up with this single axiom.
0: Yeah, the book is wonderfully clear as well, like it's really accessible because I'm not i I'm not a specialist in this field, you know what I mean? I'm just a high school teacher who likes talking to people about their scholarship. So for someone like me who very much has not studied these topics to, you know, be able to dive into something like this and comprehend what's happening, I mean, it says a lot to me cuz I'm just that kind of reader, you know what I mean? I'm um, glad. Yeah, so it works. It's wonderful. Um, you know, living where you live in the world too. You've been on this show twice now. We talked about Socrates, we talked about Epictetus. I'm wondering if you have any, uh, like, if you do any travels around your work, if you go to places around the region that you've relocated to, um, and if you have any just like adventure stories that you'd like to share from like living in this part of the world that you study as a scholar.
1: Uh, when, when I write my history books, yes, my wife and I, uh, um, you know, take a couple of weeks away from home and we drive around. Like, for instance, when I wrote a book on the Roman conquest of Greece, um, The Romans came in uh, into what is now Albania and Croatia, and so we traveled all the way through Albania and Croatia and places like that. Uh, But when I do my translations, not so much. So I've never Mm -hmm. done, as it were, a dedicated epic teachers tour he was born as i mentioned before in hierapolis in what is now southwest turkey and i've googled that and there are, it looks wonderful there are quite a lot of ancient remains left and it looks well worth a visit and i'd like to get there sometime i don't mm-hmm. know the ancient remains of turkey half as well as i'd like to i've seen a number of them but not by far from all um and i've been to okay so i mean the three chief places associated with epictetus would be That place, Hierapolis in southwestern Turkey, Uh, Rome, where he then lived for maybe as much as 20 years. Um, But when you visit Rome, it would be very hard to get a sense of his presence because everything's so crowded. Sure. You've got you've got the modern city and so on and so forth. But Nicopolis, where he lived on the, uh, as I say, for the 30 years or so of his life on the west coast of Greece, um, the ruins there are on their own. And I have visited Nicopolis, well, years before that I, you know, before I even dreamt of translating Epictetus. Um, and that's really the first place I would suggest that people might go if they wanted to get a sense of his his presence because he lived there so long. Um, there are various remains in Nicopolis, but two stand out. First of all, the, um, the city walls are magnificent. Um, Actually, I should have thought in advance and then I could do a screen share and I could have put up a picture of the city walls, but it's too late now. Yeah. Anyway, the city walls of Magnificent, a very long stretch of them survives uh, to a height and to a length more than anywhere I've seen elsewhere. So you really get a sense of the importance and the grandeur of the city. Um, And second, there's the Actium Memorial. Now, Nicopolis was founded by Octavian soon to be Augustus, the first emperor of Rome. Its name means victory city. Its name and its location commemorate the final victory of Augustus over his rivals, who in this case were Antony and Cleopatra in the Roman civil wars. The main memorial of his victory is what is still surviving to a certain extent, and it would have been originally a vast edifice of stone inscribed with details of his naval victory, and sporting almost 40 of the bronze rams of his enemies captured ships. It still stands alone on a hill and it's well worth a visit. It's easy to imagine its original splendor.
0: That is so cool. I love stuff like that. Um, Cause I'm hoping to get back to that part of the world now that things are you know, moving into the next phase of human uh, society and civilization. <laughs> um, what is next for you? Because you were here four years ago to to chat about one of your books, and you know, um, then you've got this this several new books since you and I have last chatted. Mm-hmm. What what's come What's coming up next for you?
1: Um, I've got a biography of Plato. Curiously, can you imagine this? I mean, given the how famous Plato is, this will be the first ever book length biography of Plato. Amazing. So I've got that is at the moment just starting its process through production at Oxford University Press, and that'll be out perhaps next May, I hope next May. Um, but that so that's an original book I wrote, not a translation, but I'm 70 now, Greg, and I think I'm going to yeah. de stress my life a bit. So unless a really juicy project occurs to me or falls into my lap. I think I'll focus more on translating than on writing original books. So I've done the Epictetus. At the moment, I'm translating Thucydides, the historian, um, his history of the Peloponnesian War. I'm translating that for basic books who published by Marcus Aurelius, and hopefully further translations will follow. As I say, I'll keep an open mind. If a really juicy project falls into my lap, I'll I'll take it up, but uh, otherwise, I've got a lot of translating to do.
0: Well, Robin Waterfield, it is a delight to have you back on the show. You are invited anytime to come back and chat about those future books. So anytime you want to come back, uh, you're you're very welcome here. It's been a real pleasure uh, having you on the show. So thank you so much for joining me today.
1: Thank you, Greg. Thank you very much, as I said, for having me.